Come here, fellow servant, and listen to me. I'll show you how those of superior degree are only dependents, no better than we, and all in the livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in Hello, a and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking at uh, Ben Franklin's writings, mostly from the Pennsylvania Gazette. I think maybe all from the Pennsylvania Gazette from 1732 until... Uh, 1745, so a pretty big chunk of time. Uh, important years for uh, for Franklin. So it's here we see him really being involved with like the American Philosophical Society, starting it. So we have the the opening kind of document of that, which is about really creating like a kind of like a royal society kind of thing in America that could communicate with scientists and natural philosophers in. England and in Europe more broadly and could bring that kind of information back to America. So the mechanism of how that would be done, which I think there's some interesting thoughts there, maybe on on what, uh, like how we should deal with like patents and public domain and and those kinds of things, copyrights. We see this also the time that Ben Franklin talks about starting like a fire department in Philadelphia and, and starting um, post offices. And I guess the Philosophical Society stuff is connected to that. Um, so, I mean, this is all known. This is, this is all in his biography. But um, what are these articles in the Pennsylvania Gazette put together by our editor? Um, uh, what's his name? J. Leo LeMay. He chose what I was going to put here. Speak to that. Um, what, do, what do these articles say about these things? And, and they are documented um, fairly well. But I, I guess I just want to more think about... Um, Instead of kind of going article by article here, I, I want to think about the the press and and what it means for us and what it meant for Franklin and why he chose to work through the press. Um, it seems, um, I mean, I don't know what function the the media and the press play. I mean, I mean, we have, I guess there are sort of like online news sources stuff that that create some kind of online virtual community, but it's an insular community. It's, you know how the algorithm works. You get the videos of that you're going to agree with. They know what kind of videos you like to watch based on what you watched before. So there's no, it just kind of expands the factionalism of the broader media environment, whether it's like television or print media. And I don't want to like condemn all print media uh, or or television media as being as contributing to kind of this uh, kind of impotence of the political sphere, because um, because I don't really want to I don't want to think about that so much. What I want to talk about is like what is the role to create a community, which I don't think the media does at all anymore. Uh, I mean, I don't see much evidence of it, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. It it has some function of communicating to the public now, and it has some informative role 
I, I don't think it's very good at like the investigative part. It doesn't really dig up the secrets. It's not, you know, there are journalists who do that, but I don't think by and large journalism does a very effective job at really digging up the dirt. And that's an important function too, but I think there's a more important one beyond that. And that is being the center of a discourse and a conversation and being a place of that people go to not to feed their political uh, uh, wishes uh, or, or get them kind of satiated by by, re by reading or hearing from people the same political opinion and not um, and not necessarily to go for like the like the investigative journalism route where you read just to just try kind of expose the corrupt, right? That's an important function, but I don't, that doesn't build society. It doesn't build community. It doesn't build solidarity in society. Again, necessarily function. And, and I think you'll see that in early journalism too. But what I get the feeling here reading the Philadelphia Gazette is, and especially Ben Franklin's writings from it, is that the Philadelphia Gazette was uh, an Athenaeum. It was a, a community center. It was a civic center almost. It wasn't just to make money or to report the news. Uh, it was trying to to create uh, a place of conversation. And every, so much is two-way here. It's like the editors and Franklin would present an idea and the community would respond to that idea. And you know, and things would get done. I mean, that's that's an important role of, of newspapers. And again, I don't think much of it's done. You know, you know, you could pub. You know, how much does the media affect what politicians do? I'm not sure. I, I don't. I don't see much of it because they're all bought and paid for already, right? They're all. It's the corruption so deep that that the public discourse doesn't seem to have much parallel with what politicians actually do. Um, but you have conversations here, you have comedy, you have jokes, you have uh, a feeling that it's engaged with real lived space. I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to make, I don't have an argument here. I don't have like lay up evidence. It's just how I feel reading this. I feel that the newspaper was an antheneum uh, or, or a, a variant of that. And I, and I would argue there's efforts in Philly at the time to create institutions that, you know, and Ben Franklin was part of that, right? With the American Philosophical Society of creating a space for a conversation and for community, which seems to me what we're lacking. Uh, and uh, it seems we don't have that anymore. The internet is a pretty poor replacement because it's not real. It's not, it's 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 all about oneself. It's it's an act of consumption, like all of capitalism, that can only satisfy your needs. It's not two way, right? It's not, you know. It's it's like the difference between making love and watching porn, right? One is a consumer action that satisfies your own needs. The other is a much more uplifting and engaging experience in which you're fulfilling the needs of, of, of two people, right? Building a bit of community there, right? Um, now, where can this stuff take place? Certainly, I think it can take place in the media. That's what I'm trying to argue here. Um, or at least the media can be a part of that. Just because it's not now doesn't mean it, that's all it needs to be. It's not, it doesn't have to always be just an act of consumption 
or or um, self satisfaction. Um, and I think that's where like a lot of the value here is. I I, I think I felt kind of sad reading reading these because they, it did seem I could feel myself with the Philadelphia Gazette at like a tavern or something in in 1740 Philadelphia talking about what I'm reading with my with the people around me and it being an actually enjoyable political experience right that doesn't just isn't just politically necessary because of the conversations that are being had and the thoughts that are being bounced back and forth but enjoyable in its own right as a source of social pleasure so um how do we get back to that i don't know if we can but um but i see evidence of that here and i guess that's sort of what i want to say i i I guess i don't really have too much in the way of details i want to get into here but we can i can i can kind of talk you through what a little bit of what's in here um got one on drunkenness here. There are some interesting gender stuff here, and this is a good example of this. This article on drunkenness is kind of a a gendered conversation about alcohol. And of course, all the, the debate about alcohol in the United States has always been gendered, right? Like temperance movement, the prohibition movement. It, the discourse was always gendered in the sense that it is men who are drinking, it is women who are pure. It's like the separate spheres idea. Men are out in public and drinking. And then women are and children at home and much more sanctified, much more pure. But the problem is when men bring that into their home, the drink into their home, disrupting the home environment, the home finances, bringing in violence or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and of course, there, there were women who drank, but they were not seen as the good wives. Right. There were the nasty wenches. If we if remember, who's that book? Kathleen Brown's book, Nasty Wenches and anxious patriarchs or whatever about 17th century Virginia that doesn't quite apply here but you know there was the good women and the bad women right in these kind of conversations of the progressive era and of the antebellum period this is of course 18th century but it's tied to this first great awakening so I think there might be there's that same kind of moral conversation then I don't know as much about it but uh but here you see a little bit of this uh gendered language about women, but it's, it's, it's concerning women who drink. Uh, quote, I was much pleased with the short caution you gave in one of your papers on the occasion of a woman whose sudden death at a coroner's inscript ascribed to the violent effects of strong drink and being myself relate, related in the nearest manner to one on whom that caution seems to have some good effect. I would wish that you'd pursue it further in which perhaps you may oblige others beside me. End quote. So he's saying we should continue to have this conversation about women who drink too much. And maybe try to get them to drink, drink less. And he talks, he says very explicitly, drunkenness is palatable among men to a certain degree. Now, remember, as silence do good, as a much, much younger man, Ben Franklin said that drinking, you know, is not a creative, create, create, creative inducer. It's more like a, it's the lubrication. It's a social lubricant. Right? So it's not entirely a bad thing. But he's, she's there. Ben Franklin, as Silence Stugood, is talking about men drinking. Here, it's Ben Franklin straight up talking about women drinking, saying it is incompatible with the virtues which um, make women amiable or valuable to men. 
boy howdy uh so it's i guess it's interesting part of the conversation because usually when i hear gender in the drink debate it, it seems to be connected to the impact drink has on women the negative impact drink has on women via men who who, who bring in poverty or unemployment or violence into their home um but here it's it's women not doing their duty as women because of drink so i guess i'll just leave it at that but it's 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 an interesting little article about it um there's also a lot of class argument here too whereas the drinking of spirits and strong waters is becoming very common among the people of inferior ranks and the constant use thereof tends greatly to the destruction of their health innervating them and rendering them unfit for useful labor, intoxicating them and debauching their morals and leading them into all manner of vices and wickedness, the prevention whereof would be the greatest public good and benefits. This is sounding like a like an antebellum, uh, you know, temperance advocate, I guess. Um, another interesting article here is uh, from, I think, 1733, uh, called Black Amor on Mulatto Gentlemen, which is... Uh, uh, pretty racist argument um but it's speaking to a phenomenon he's may coming across maybe coming across in philly uh where i don't know how big the free black population would have been in 1733 remember by this point slavery is is over 100 years old in the united states right and it's a national institution it's not a regional institution right it's not just of the south in fact pennsylvania new york those middle states were the large had the at the time of the American Revolution had the largest slave populations outside the South in terms of population, but there was also a strong and significant free black population. So, if if you read like Ira Berlin's book on the generations of captivity, it's a really great book. He identifies five generations, and he he wrote a thick book that looked at the first two generations, the the Creole, is it no the, the migration? No, it's not the migration. The migration is the antebellum. It's, um, well, the first, I forget the name he gets for the first generation, but it's like the generation of first people come where slavery wasn't a yet established institution. It wasn't tied essentially to plantation slavery. And there was some mobility and you could kind of work your way into freedom. And you had, uh, you had much people with one for close African ties, uh, much more kind of worldly experience. Um, so that charter generation, that's what it's called. He called it the charter generation. And then you have the plantation generation, which, of course, is that 18th century where it gets established as uh, you know, plantation slavery. Then you have the revolutionary generation where this, this plantation system gets disrupted by the American Revolution. Then it gets uh, reinforced in the migration generation, the fourth. And then you have the, the, the emancipation generation. Anyways, he's got a big book about the first two. And anyways, what I want to say is, depending on the geography, Ira Berlin makes the point that depending on the geography, you might have different generations at the same time in different places, right? Like one place might have a charter generation, another place might be fully in the plantation generation. Right? And, or that experience of what it means to be in one of these generations would be different in different regions. So I'd have to go back and look to what he says about Philly in this period. Um, but I get the sense here, we were talking about 
um, either free blacks or those who are who are of that charter generation and have a, a looser relationship with slavery um, than their plantation brothers because these are, seem to be fairly mobile people. So he's talking about uh, mulatto gentlemen, like so so biracial men who are trying to pass as white. This is something we've talked a lot about in other um, contexts, like uh, Charles Chestnut's work or some of the Harlem Renaissance stuff way back early in this podcast. That's this debate, discussion of whiteness in the color line among African-Americans. Long history in this podcast, way back almost to its beginnings. I think it was like my second or third series was looking at Harlem Renaissance books. So he writes this, uh, it is observed concerning the generation of mulattoes that they are seldom well beloved either by the whites or the blacks. Their approach towards whiteness makes them look back with some kind of scorn upon the color which they seem to have left, while the Negroes who do not think themselves think them better than themselves return their contempt with interest. And whites who respect them no whit the more for their near affinity in color are apt to regard their behavior as too bold and assuming and bordering on impudence. As they are next to Negroes and just above them, they are terribly afraid of being thought Negroes and therefore avoid as much as possible their company or commerce. And white folk are a little fond of their company of mulattoes. Now, his thesis in this article is kind of, he thinks these are kind of ridiculous people. Uh, the people who are trying to pass is white. Um, but I want to kind of suggest here Right. This is not the one drop rule. I mean, Ben Franklin here is not embracing what would later be known as something like the one drop rule or where identity as as black in America, like this racial identity. We're talking about it. We see here the racial identity still being like debated and discoursed and, and in flux. It would have come very entrenched by the middle of the 18th century, especially in the South. Right. Even even before that, in some of those places. But maybe in a place like Philly. And certainly in places like New Orleans, where the color line was much more complex, as you as you probably know, um, maybe there's a maybe Ben Franklin's describing a social reality where the color line isn't firmly as entrenched as it would become later on in American history. Um, both in the fact that these people can kind of try to pass, and Ben Franklin's kind of mocks them and says, you know, it's kind of a joke how, do, how they, they can do it. But he also uses language that says they are not the same. He doesn't use the same category. It's not these are black people just trying to to leave their race and, and socially play as white. He's got he's has it. There is a separate category. So it's more like New Orleans, where you had these different categories of black and colored and, and all that. Or or, or though that's the language of white South Africa of, of, or I mean of apartheid South Africa, right? Where you had colored and black. You know, black was like African, colored would be biracial. But it was something like that in New Orleans. I don't know exactly the lack of language, but mulattoes were socially distinct from people who were not biracial. So interesting stuff going on in this article as well, even though I think we can criticize Ben Franklin for uh, not taking this phenomenon as seriously as we might like today. But um, I think he's, this is not to his credit or to his detriment. I think he's just of his time uh, when talking about these things. But I think he's on to maybe a social reality that's worthy of more study and thought. 
Um, Brave Men at Fires. I, I only want. I only. I'm, I had nothing really to say about this except for the fact that, uh, as I'm right recording this, we're still reeling from the shooting in Texas of the school that killed 19 children, and when the police uh, did not want to go inside to um, save anyone's life. Here we got a little article about brave men saving children's lives during fire. So again, uh, to the sense that, to the degree that our breakdown of society has made it permissible for armed men to not enter into school to save children who are being killed, who are begging for help. To the degree that that is because we live in a bureaucratic late capitalist hellhole that creates no space for solidarity or community in which people don't feel the need that they will never feel that their life is worth less than someone else's, which in society, in a true society, in a true community, you feel that. You realize that your life is less valuable than the group because you can't, partially because you can't imagine your own existence outside of that community, but also because you, you realize your life is substantially better because you're a part of that. Right? You with me? Yet now, our men, armed men with armor, literally, and, and weapons, are unwilling to risk their life to save children. That wasn't the case in Philly in the 18th century, according to this. So a shout out to these, these nameless men who risked their lives to save, save children in fires in, in 1734 Philly. Um, what else do we have here? Some stuff, a lot of little articles on different topics. Some on religion. Uh, this is when he starts to doubt his Presbyterianism. He starts, stops going to church. Um, or goes less regular. He does befriend, like, uh, was it George Whitefield? And so he's in tune with the First Great Awakening kind of debates and discussions. But he stops uh, attending his uh, mainstream Presbyterian uh, services. Uh, we have discussions here about the militia and their role, which I think is... Uh, I like the role of the militia and what it should do, which I think is an interesting debate. Also, maybe tied to this gun control debate, too. My personal solution to this is to have a universal militia uh, and have our gun rights ensconced in that universal militia. So literally take, take a well-regulated militia seriously as a kind of concept and enroll everyone in such militia from... I don't know, age 15 to, to uh, I don't know, some, some year. And then you will have access to guns. You will have the right to bear arms via this militia. That's my solution. So you should implement that in the United States. Um, I don't know if it would be considered, if it would pass Supreme Court muster or whatever, but I don't care. I think it's in line with the concept. Um, but here we got a um, Ben Franklin asking questions about the 
the the militia in 1734. And again, not far from the American Revolution. 40 years uh, later is the American Revolution. So still, I guess, a while in Ben Franklin's life. But when you think of it like historians, we're starting to get to the beginnings of it, right? The Seven Years' War is right around the corner here. Um, but what does he talk about? He talks about like the limits of the rights of the militia. He actually is talking about things that will be relevant in the American Revolution. Quote, whether if they were in possession of the governments and quartered upon the inhabitants, they would take out the honesty and scruple of conscience, forbade to take anything which was not their own, and out of modesty and bashfulness, forbade to ravish any of our wives and daughters, or whether they would not do as they did when they overran Holland in 1675. So anyways, we have this militia. We have... Uh, apparently well-regulated, and we have oversight and conversation about its function and roles and, and powers in, in the press. All good stuff. I guess. Um, stuff on religion. Uh, oh, uh, we got another court case. I think we last time we talked about a court case where some people were pardoned, like on their execution day. Pretty horrific stuff. Here we have a two people who murdered their daughter. It's a really bizarre case because they basically left the kid 14 years old. So not a little, little kid, but they let her outside, exposed her to hardships. Uh, and she got sick from this and later died. And so they had brought all the evidence and the verdict was manslaughter. So they were punished. This was their sentence. They were sentenced to be burned on the hand which was accordingly executed in the court upon them both, but first upon the man who offered to receive another burning. So if so, his wife might be excused, but was told the law would not allow it. So it seems kind of a light penalty for, for manslaughter, I suppose, considering we, we had that case before where they were just thieves and they were going to be executed, put to death. Um, but I guess maybe some signs of, of parental powers, right? How far the courts are willing to go to... Um, attack the rights of parents to kind of do what they want to their kids. But yeah, don't don't expose your kids to undue hardship, such as sickness and lameness. It's uh, may not end up good. Uh, there's a lot here about uh, like the building of the fire department, uh, which is of course one of Franklin's achievements. Uh, an article on protection of towns from fire, um, which was, it's, it's weird. A lot of these articles are like written to Ben Franklin, like written to the editor. And then there's like some fake name. And it's actually Ben Franklin just starting something, uh, a conversation, which I think is great. Uh, we should maybe, this is not a bad tradition. Self-denial, not the instance of virtue. We get a little philosophical essay he wrote for the Pennsylvania Gazette in which he's arguing for... Um, yeah, not not total self-denial, obviously, saying we need to, uh, like, things like temperance, justice, charity are virtues. So it's like an Aristotelian idea, right, where the best choice is in the middle of things. You know, temperance is not total abstinence of alcohol or eating or whatever, and, and it's also not overconsumption, right? So, so he's got kind of an Aristotelian argument for, for virtue here, which I... I think is not bad. And then we have some articles that are really fun, like the Drinker's Dictionary, where Ben Franklin created a taxonomy 
alphabetical of every euphemism for a drunk. Uh, a, he is addled. He is cashing up his accounts. He's afflicted. He's in his heirs. B, he's biggie, bewitched, block and block, boozy, bozed, been at Barbados, piss in the brook, drunk as a wheelbarrow, burdocked, bussy, or buzzy. And there's a bunch more Bs. Um, he's cat, capable, cramped, carinubical, cherry mary, wample cropped, cracked. And he goes on this with pretty much every alphabet, letter of the alphabet, except we don't have Y or Z here. Uh, so he creates a dictionary of euphemisms for a drunk, which is always useful. So find this online and, and use it next time you're, you're, you're with your friends. <laughs> and, they, they, and, and you run out of euphemisms for, for drinking. Um, is that good enough? Oh, there's another article on paper currency. I, I'm only, we mentioned this last time uh, that he did have that article on paper currency. That was not published in the Pennsylvania Gazette. It was published before he took that over, I think, written before he took that over. Maybe self-published. Uh, but all of this is self-published as they talked about last time. But that was an argument for paper currency. This was about fixing its value because, of course, the criticism of paper currency at the time and even now is that it has no real value. So its value is arbitrary. How do you set it to have a value? And of course, the solution for much of the paper currency era has been having some kind of uh, hard currency in a vault somewhere connecting to the currency in, in circulation at some, uh, at some level and make them redeemable, right? So you say, this is worth one pound. And of course, you don't, for every dollar paper dollar in currency, there wasn't one dollar of gold in a bank vault, right? There was always a proportion like one twentieth or something, right? Because unless you had a run on the bank, not all of it would be redeemed at once. You didn't need to have all of that. And, and that was, of course, the whole point of paper currency was not to be bound by the amount of Boolean. But you need to have some backing. Otherwise, it won't be trusted um, as currency. And that's basically what he says here is to have some, some set amount uh, of hard currency backing up these bills of credit that'd be in circulation. Um, quote, let 100,000 pounds be emitted on loan and upon good security, either in land or plate. Uh, according to the method used in Pennsylvania, the borrower to pay 5% per annum interest together with the 20th part of principal, end quote. And so that's kind of uh, what he talks about here, backing it by debt and backing it by commodities and backing it up somewhat by, by sterling, uh, by, by gold, like by pound sterling, which was backed by, by silver or gold or something. Um, so he doesn't have just one single method here for, for setting the value. So part of it is going to be debt. So I think that's kind of our system now, right? Like we don't have any gold backing up our money anymore, but we, we have obligations to pay it back. Most of the money in circulation is a debt obligation, right? Like I, I take out a mortgage, I get $100,000 or $200,000 from the bank and I have to pay that back. So that money that I took out is exists as real money in circulation, but my labor that I'll, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm forced to pay it back with, you know, my job or whatever I work is the value of that money. Is that right? It sounds right to me. Um, it also says like, put it into commodities and things like that, investments. So, 
So he's saying, don't worry about the value of the money. There's lots of ways to make sure this paper money actually has value behind it. It's not about just printing out a billion dollars and giving everyone a bunch of it and experiencing hyperinflation. There are ways that can be managed and this, this paper money can have real value behind it. So I think this is a important like, corollary to the paper money uh, article. Um, oh, and then we got, I gotta mention this because this will be the last thing I mentioned because it's towards the end here. Uh, a proposal for promoting useful knowledge among the British plantations in America. This is all about the Philosophical Society. So this was published uh, as a broadside. It wasn't published um, in the, Phil the Pennsylvania Gazette. It was published, uh, it was much more broadly publicized as like a, basically like a poster, um, which is talking about the creation of a society that would correspond with scientists and philosophers in Europe. And through this correspondence, he mentioned specifically the Royal Society of London, uh, the Dublin Society. Um, and he says, every member of the Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania Society shall have abstracts sent to him quarterly of everything valuable communicated to the society, secretary of Philly, free of charge, except yearly payment hereafter mentioned. So it's a subscription service in a sense that and you join, but you would get all the knowledge in abstract form. Um, but of course, these articles are being sent to the Philadelphia. So there's going to be a library. So if you read the abstract, you're like, oh, I want to know more about this. I presumably you could go there and read it. Um, so I only, you know, this is another thing that sort of triggered me because you, you hear about a science, you, you hear something in the news about climate change, about um, maybe a social scientific issue, maybe something that matters to you a new treatment for a disease or something, right? So, you know, you go and investigate it. You click on the link and you get sent to JSTOR. And when I was like in academia, it's no big problem. You just, just logged into your school account and there you had access to all the JSTOR articles. But now, not so much, right? You go to the article, you click on it and it's like, oh, you have to sign into your institutional account or pay a horrible amount of money, right? Some of these articles like under like a hundred dollars to download a single article. So the core research, which we fund with our taxes in part, um, and certainly that's the case with the Royal Society, where the taxes that British citizens and sub subjects, I should say, were paying to the crown was funding the Royal Society. So they had a right to it, didn't they? Right to access to it. And that's what the, the Pennsylvania Philosophical Society believed. And Ben Franklin seemed to believe, of course, there has to be a fee for membership in the community, but I don't get the sense it's much. Um, but of course, Ben Franklin believed in public libraries. He believed all this knowledge should be accessible. But where knowledge is less and less accessible to people, libraries are being defunded and a lot of our research is behind these paywalls. And so, yeah, let's stop that. Let's. Um, make this stuff public domain. That's what I want to say. There's no reason research that is supported at all by any taxes. And that, that I would say includes pretty much everything, but 
certainly anything created by an academic working in a university. And I'm going to include private universities here because students attend through student loans and grants, scholarships, which are partially paid for by tax dollars. So those institutions are also funded by the support of the public. So anything published by anyone employed by these institutions should be free for everyone at any time. And that includes their books, right? So does that mean we should have nationalized publishing houses that publishes research? Maybe, maybe that's what it's going to mean because you could say, oh, yeah, this publisher still, Oxford University Press or whatever still, but Oxford University, that's publicly funded too, right? Why should, just because they are institutionally separate from Oxford, they're using the name, that they're somehow supported by Oxford, right? We should use an American one, right? Uh, you know, Harvard University Press or whatever. I think their books should be public domain at the instant they're published. And I don't know about distribution. And I know books are expensive and you can't expect free paper and things like that. But we're in the Internet age. You can just throw up PDFs. People can still buy the paper books if they want. That's my feeling about it. I, I'm probably wrong, but... That's what I think. And, and I, let's just do it. Certainly journal articles need to be. And it's not just a moral question of should. They, they need to be for the public good and the public trust to be accessible to everyone. No more paywalls for f basic research that's being done and published. It should be accessible to the public. And you, it should, you, know, you shouldn't be dependent on living in a place with a good public library. Right? Some people live in bumblefuck Wisconsin, like I used to, and our libraries didn't have a lot of stuff. So there we go. That's it. That's my thoughts on Ben Franklin. Next episode, we'll, we'll definitely have the Albany plan. I think we'll get, uh, let me, 17, 1766. So we're starting to get into the American Revolution. Uh, reasons for a plan of union. So we're going to get to that. We'll, 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 let's go up through the Albany plan of union. Let's stop there. And and that, and then we're going to have a bunch of stuff about the sixty from the sixties. So two more episodes before we explore his his time in London. His twenty years in London, starting in fifty seven. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I brought up a bunch of interesting stuff I think interesting, so let me know what you think about all of it. Um, I'll see you next no time. distinction she craves. So we laugh at the great world, its fools and its knaves, for we are all servants, but they are all slaves. And all in a livery, tis here fellow servant and there fellow servant, and all in a livery. Dear fellow servant and their fellow servant and all in the